0: Now, all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Becky Gray, who is the Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation and is a frequent guest on our program, is with us this week. And uh, we're going to test Becky's insights and knowledge on what's going on in the 2019 legislative session. Uh, We've got lots to talk about, about redistricting, and, of course, the typical problems that we always have with the economy, uh, especially health care and, um, uh, and, of course, the partisanship that we've talked about uh, from time to time about uh, how we sort of get everybody back on track and working together. So, Becky, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Well, thank you for being here. And uh, we, we like to tap your experience at the General Assembly and uh, find out exactly what's going on down there because you spend a good bit of time at the General Assembly. I spend a
1: lot of time there. I have great job security. I spend a lot of time (laughs) at the General Assembly working with politicians. Nobody wants my
0: job. Well, we always talk about, you know, uh, giving alerts, especially, you know, we just had the hurricane situation come up, and we've spent a lot of time warning people about what can happen. The General Assembly is sort of like a uh, like a hurricane, and uh, but we don't send out alerts every day. I mean, we don't say, you know, boy, there's things down there going on that, <laughs> that could be endanger your well-being.
1: Well, and the thing about it is, too, you know, hurricanes usually are come and gone within a few days. This General <laughs> Assembly just goes on and on and on. I mean, here we are, you know, in September, and they're still in session.
0: Yep. Uh and I always like uh, when they have the so-called regular session and the long session. They're both about the same length. I mean, well, and
1: the long session, they weren't kidding. It's really a yeah. long session, January to here we are, September, and really no end in sight.
0: Well, the time, well one of the big tie is the budget impasse. Uh, the governor has vetoed the budget, but it seems like the, the General Assembly is sort of working around that in certain areas by exempting uh, or going ahead and passing legislation for certain parts of the budget. Is that a good practice? Is that something that uh, will serve us over the long term? Or should we just handle the uh, budget impasse?
1: Well, you know, Don, I don't think it's a bad thing. It's not... The preferable thing would have been for the governor not to veto the budget or for some of the Democratic members of the Democratic caucus to override that veto and put that $24 billion package of spending in place. However, that's not the situation that we had. Uh, A couple years ago, the General Assembly, I think, was really smart in that they passed a law that said, if we have a budget impasse like this, we'll just revert to last year's spending. So we're not looking at a government shutdown. We've got that going on. But there were some things in the budget, some increase in pay for correction officers, for state employees across the board, uh, for SBI, ALE agents, and things like that, that they thought was important enough to get into place. So they've done this kind of workaround, if you will. Now the General Assembly passed that, the governor signed it, so those have gone into place. And the other thing about doing this kind of piecemeal you know don one one way to look at it is when you have that 24 billion dollar budget there's a lot of stuff in there when you do it piece by piece it's more transparent um you know we know exactly what those raises are going to be we consider it individually now to do that through every line item in the in the budget is probably impractical just because of the time that it would take but this has been, this has occurred because and been necessary because of this budget impasse that we're in, and it's just the way we're going to get things done. It, pe- it appears.
0: Well, you know, of course, this brings up the cry for the uh, idea of the line item veto because this is apparently almost all over the Medicaid expansion issue. Well,
1: that's what you know the um, governor has said, Do, even during his campaign for governor. Two years ago, he said his number one priority was Medicaid expansion. As this budget has come down, he said, really as far back as November, that he would veto any budget that did not have Medicaid expansion. So that has been the line in the sand. The General Assembly has said, we absolutely agree something needs to be done to address the health care needs. They don't believe that Medicaid expansion is the way to go. So hence, we have this impasse all over the governor's insistence on Medicaid expansion. What do you think about
0: line item veto? Uh, on Both the state level and the federal level. Well,
1: I mean, I don't know that that's a, a bad idea. I think it's important to know why the governor or the president or anybody else would veto a particular budget, you know, like he vetoed the budget outlined several things of the reason why but the main thing was not having the medicaid expansion i don't think a a line item veto is a bad idea other states have that it doesn't seem to gum up the works too much
0: the other thing that has uh, become more and more apparent is that we are going to have a big surplus Uh, and i haven't heard a lot of talk about uh, where that's going to go
1: well, Senator Berger, actually Senator Berger and the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, have suggested that they take part of that surplus and return it to the people that sent it to Raleigh. They're talking about some sort of a rebate for taxpayers, doing that with some of the money. It You know, it wouldn't be a lot of money, $100, $150 into each household kind of thing, or some of the estimates that are being done, but I think more than anything, it sends that message that this leadership understands where that money comes from and what's to return it to the taxpayers and of course Don you know one of the other things that happens with the surplus this unexpected money is it should be used for non-recurring expenses things like perhaps some capital improvements um, and also putting money into the rainy day fund.
0: Well I was getting ready to say we of course you know we we can't forecast hurricanes but we've had our share here and of course uh, things could be worse but uh, the rainy day fund is going to be taxed again.
1: Yeah, and in in this budget, that we're still in this budget impasse, one of the things was, was to shore that back up, to bring yep. it back to about that $2 billion level, which is about 10% of our budget, was the largest that it had ever been in state history. And as you mentioned, this is going to continue to be a need. And Um, Don, you know, as you mentioned, we don't know when the next hurricane may come or the next storm, but we know that it's coming, and it may not come by way of a natural disaster. It may be some sort of an economic downturn
0: that's beyond our
1: control, but something we would need to deal with.
0: I I think the term rainy day indicates that that fund is used only for weather, but it is to cover also downturns in the economy, and uh, there's more and more talk that we are in for at least – At least a mild recession, if not uh, something a little heavier. But most forecasts are it's going to be relatively mild. But mild recessions always affect North Carolina a little bit more than other states.
1: And you know, imagine if you would that we do go into a recession and there's not enough money in the coffers. You know, businesses are stressed. Individual taxpayers are stressed. People may be out of work. You know, during that time, we want to have money set aside so that we can pay teachers, so that we can pay our police officers, so that we can make sure that the prison guards are being paid. I mean, there's a lot of functions of state government. We want to ensure that those are done. If we have that money set aside, then we can take care of those things without going back to the taxpayers who are stressed and still let government go. It also puts us in a position so that we come out of a recovery much stronger. So there's, there are hundreds of reasons why putting this money aside is a good idea and not many reasons not to do it.
0: See, I'd like to change the name of that, rain, you know, not call it Rainy Day Fund, because that does imply it's more weather-related. And it has been used for weather, right, quite extensively. But maybe call it something like the Safety Net Fund or something well, like that. Well, you know, yeah, that's, that's because a good idea. I, I think it does uh, give people a false, sort of a false feeling that it's used for things that are only related to weather. And, of course, about two-thirds of the state says, you know, I'm not as interested in that as I am some of the other things that faces from day to day. Well, okay, so so what's your forecast here of when this impasse is going to end and how it's going to end? Or is it well,
1: you know. Uh,
0: is it, First of all, is, is it, it going to really end?
1: <laughs> you know, Don, it may not, and the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, the General Assembly was really smart a couple years ago in that they put a provision into law that said, if we don't have a budget, we'll just revert back to last year's spending. Now, what that does, it doesn't allow for some of these pay increases. It doesn't allow for the teacher pay increases. The Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina is hoping for a new building. There are lots of spending in that budget that is being held up that won't occur. But the basic functions of state government and the things that we had last year would continue to be funded. It's about $2 billion less in spending if you go back to last year's. And again, you know, we can just put that $2 billion into a rainy day fund and see. But there's a lot of good things in that budget that I'm hoping the it it, really the hold up at this point is the Democratic members of the General Assembly who have heeded Roy Cooper's insistence that they not vote to override his veto so you know as this thing drags on also as we are recovering from this storm anticipating things coming up i'm hoping that the general assembly and the members uh, will look at look to their constituents and make a decision of what's best for the constituents rather than towing the party line
0: another thing that's uh, sort of concerning here is we're talking about uh, uh, the possibility of a mild recession, or maybe even worse, but certainly a mild recession over the next uh, 18 months or so. Well, taking $2 billion out of the economy can speed that along. Right. I mean, that, that's money that is in circulation. And uh, when we say in circulation, when it's spent, it's spent again and again and again. And, and so not spending that $2 billion will probably likely return um, a less of a surplus the year after. Uh, you know, the economy is so interesting because when you push in, it's like a balloon. You push it in one place, it's going to pop out another.
1: Right. And that, you know, these unintended consequences or looking on down line and trying to prepare as best you can um, is something that I think the General Assembly has done really well. And, again, a reason why this budget needs to move forward.
0: So, again, what, what's your forecast here?
1: I'm hoping that. After this most recent storm that we've had, after many of the members of the General Assembly go back to their districts, I'm hoping that the message from constituents is, you know, we're all North Carolinians, we need to move forward with this and that they will then vote to override the veto. Because, you know, Don, one thing, in all of these districts, there are Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated voters, and even people who have not registered to vote, that those members of the General Assembly have an obligation, took an oath to represent all of their constituents, not just their party. So what I would hope is that the the voters and the constituents' interest will take a precedent over the party line and the party line direction.
0: Our guest is Becky Gray, and we'll be back with more here on Carolina Newsmakers. We're going to talk about redistricting and recent court uh, action on that. When we return with more, you stay tuned. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo.
1: This year, the North Carolina Guardian Ad Litem Program is celebrating its 25th anniversary of being a voice for children who are victims of child abuse and neglect. The Guardian Ad Litem Program provides trained, independent advocates to represent abused and neglected children in court proceedings and to help make sure they have a safe, permanent home, what every child needs volunteerism is the cornerstone of the guardian ad litem program and volunteers are needed if you have just a few hours each month to rise to the challenge and volunteer please call 1-800-982-4041 or visit ncgal.org volunteer for the guardian ad litem program be the voice for a child we continue with Carolina newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis.
0: We're back with Becky Gray, Senior Vice President of the John Locke Foundation. Uh, John Locke Foundation, of course, an advocacy group, um, and uh, and uh, we always like to have a little bit of uh, perspective from both sides. The John Locke Foundation is probably uh, leans on the conservative side of issues, and um, of course, you know when you're. When you're leaning, when you're a conservative organization, you think you're in the middle, and the same thing is true with liberals. They all think they're in the middle too. I think that's interesting. It doesn't make any difference who you are. Everybody thinks they're in the middle.
1: Everybody thinks they're right. That's right. <laughs>
0: and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but that uh, you know, the thing that I've always enjoyed about the John Locke Foundation and uh, their folks that uh, work at the General Assembly is they do encourage dialogue and. Um, generally speaking, always had an open mind on all issues, and sometimes come down on uh, what a lot of people would think is a more liberal position. So it's not just always a, a right-wing conservative organization. Not at all. No. Um, as I said, they lean conservative, and so now we we're, we're talking about leaning. Okay. So um, all right. So we had a finally a ruling from the North Carolina courts on the redistricting of House and Senate districts in the state of North Carolina. The congressional districts, that matter was settled earlier as far as the courts were concerned. So now we've got a uh, short window here to put the General Assembly to work to come up with redistricting.
1: Yeah, this was a little bit of a surprise. They have two weeks in which um, to come up with new legislative maps, and it affects just some of the legislative districts. But this is going to be um, kind of a heavy lift and a rush. Already there have been redistricting commission committee meeting set for early next week. Uh, they start that on Monday. So that process will begin. And yeah, this three-judge panel of the Court of Appeals came down with this decision. The General Assembly, or at least Senator Berger, has said they are not going to appeal that decision. They're going to comply with the judgment that this three-judge panel made. And, yeah, two weeks they have to do these new districts. And, Don, part of that is to have this in place for the 2020 elections. Um, filing for that begins in December. So it really is right around the corner. We think of the election of 2020 being so far off, but it really is right around the corner for, for North Carolina.
0: Uh, is two weeks a reasonable period of time? I mean,
1: Well it seems awfully rushed to me because the court also said that they were going to have to have public hearings and input from the public and two weeks seem really rushed to get that kind of outreach organized and I don't know what that's going to look like as far as um, input from the public. Now of course these days with you know the internet and websites and those kind of things there's lots of avenues for people to access information and then to let their to express their views on it. Uh, But yeah two weeks seems like a very short time window but that's what they've got and the General Assembly's moving forward with that the what the judges have said.
0: So give us the uh the condensed version the Reader's Digest version the uh classic comic book version of uh, exactly what the court said they want them to do in this uh, in this redistricting process? Well,
1: what they said was that when they drew the districts in 2017, that there was too much partisan influence that was done as they drew those districts, and that districts were drawn to elect Republicans, districts were drawn based on partisan criteria, and that that is a violation of the state constitution. So they've come back to the General Assembly and under our state constitution, Don, our General Assembly is authorized and charged with drawing the districts for the congressional districts as well as the legislative districts. So that's why, I mean, it's it's in our constitution that it's their job. The court came back and said, you didn't do your job right. You're gonna have to redo it. And they designated some districts Um, in both the House and Senate that will have to be redrawn. They said that it's going to have to be done within two weeks. They said it's going to have to have public hearings. It said it's going to have to be done not behind closed doors, but out in the open. The actual drawing of the maps is going to have to be done. They said that incumbency could be taken under consideration. But other than that, they could not use past electoral history or voter registration or any of of that partisan information in drawing those districts.
0: Now, it, interesting that you said incumbency can be considered. That, that doesn't mean it has to be.
1: Right, but that to me was a little bit of, of you know, an incongruity in the That's, judge's decision that if it has to be totally nonpartisan, it seems to me that incumbency would be part of those things that could not be considered. So that was a b- bit of an odd twist.
0: I thought so, too, because uh, uh, that can make the job of being fair uh Uh, very difficult to do because if you're preserving a district, then you've got to work around it.
1: And all of those incumbents are associated with one party or the other, oh. you know, is the thing. But then the other thing that... that now, in North p- Carolina,
0: a person running for the Senate or a House has to live in the district. Yes. Now, that's yes. not true with Congress. That's true,
1: yes. Which is interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if you want to run for the 13th district, you can live in the 1st district.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah, I've always thought that was kind of an interesting We've twist as well. We've never had that well. to happen, mm-hmm.
0: uh, to my knowledge.
1: No, well, there's been some challenges to, you know, if, if particularly in the legislature, legislative races if they live in those districts. But, you know, I'm not sure that it's ever been done. I don't know how what your campaign slogan would be to your constituents. I don't live in your district, but
0: elect me anyway. Well, while I was getting to, it would look like to me they would say, okay, if you're an incumbent and we change you and you don't happen to live in the district you want to run in, you can still run. Yeah, I don't think there's any allowance to change that rule. That would make the drawing of the lines a little easier. Right, yeah, if you didn't have
1: to consider, you know, where – um, you know, Senator Curtis lives as you're drawing that district. Um, so they can consider that. But the other thing, Don, that the court did that, that I thought was very helpful is they set out the criteria for drawing the maps. I have long contended that the problem with this, and the reason why we have all these lawsuits with the redistricting is because the rules are so, we just don't know what they are. Yeah. And the courts have not set down the clear rules. Um, I've thought if the rules were clear with very little wiggle room, then it doesn't matter so much who draws the maps. It's the rules that are in place that do that. Um, and so this court has said they have to consider things like um, one man, one vote. So all of the districts have to be uh, represent about the same number. Uh, there's a little bit of um, wiggle room with that. But So it's a one-man, one-vote provision. They have to keep the districts compact so you don't have those ones that look like snakes kind of things to the extent that they can keep them compact. Also, respect county lines and city lines so that you keep those... Um, you know, in there. So the, the court did set out and reiterate some of the criteria, the standards that had previously been outlined in another redistricting case called the Stevenson case. So I think that's a good move that we have just a, a, another clear direction of here are the rules and you should comply with the rules as you're drawing these maps.
0: Well, I just, yesterday, I happened to be doing a population study of the state of North Carolina, and it's so interesting how much of our population is in about 30, 30 counties. And the other 70 counties um, make up you know, roughly about 20% of the population. And so this is another factor that makes for some differences in districts, especially in the size of the territory that a, a, a member of the House or the Senate has to serve. Because uh, we've got some counties that have, well, uh, Tyrell County has 5,000 people. Uh, in the whole county.
1: Right. And you see that and if you look at the um you know if you look at the demographics over a period of time, over 30 or 40 years and you see where the population has shifted. More people are moving to the urban areas as they move around the state and then also people moving to North Carolina across state lines are moving to the urban areas. So those have become much more densely populated where done as you observe in the rural counties there's fewer and fewer people so what you have is a Again, going back to that one man one vote provision in the urban counties, there those districts are getting geographically smaller and smaller because there's more people that live there. Where the rural counties are getting bigger and bigger uh, because there's fewer people that live there.
0: And actually, that puts the heat on the bigger counties because sometimes you you get to a street and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, if we go across this street. Uh, we're going to be in violation of the size of the population or something and so some of the things that they were concerned about I think are going to be almost impossible in the larger districts. Smaller districts are going to be easier to do, quite Mm -hmm. frankly.
1: Right. And then on down the road, what we're seeing with that is the representation and the questions that come before the entire body. So in many cases, some of these really heated discussions and real um, controversies about how to deal with these questions is not so much Republican and Democrat as it is urban and rural. Mm -hmm. Things like tax Sales tax distribution, um, money that goes to school, school construction is another one, highways and where we put the roads and those kind of things. Yep. You know, the very different needs in these different districts and the representation of those have changed. And as you mentioned, with this redistricting and these new maps, that is going to be, be a factor. And I think we'll see it even more so with these new maps.
0: Well, it's it's, it's an interesting situation uh, as North Carolina continues to grow in those 30 or so counties that are representing so much of the population continue to expand and grow very rapidly and the other counties in many cases are actually losing population and that compounds the problem long term. So it is a problem and yet uh, uh, you know, the, the state has the obligation and the responsibility to uh, serve the entire state and that creates problems. Right. Let's talk about the North Carolina economy in general and how this affects the legislature. Uh, you know, all everybody is always concerned about job growth, and uh, one of the things that uh, we always worry about is getting our fair share of new industry. And one of the things that always comes into play is this matter of incentives. We are fighting with other states uh, for industry, and so that puts the pressure on incentives. A lot of controversy about incentives for a long time because if you're making gadgets gid- and a new company comes in, they get incentives. The people who have been paying taxes for years are actually punished uh, in a way because they don't get the uh, the benefit of uh, a tax break. That's uh, one of the issues that's always bothered me a lot about incentives. On the other hand, we're forced into it because South Carolina and Virginia and Georgia and all the other states are doing it.
1: Well, that doesn't make it right. You know, it's, but, as your uh, mother yeah, used yeah. to tell you, you know, if everybody else was jumping off a bridge, would you, would you do that? It, it doesn't make it right.
0: It looks like to me this is something Congress always do. They always just say, look, tax incentives are just not legal.
1: Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right. The other thing that we could do, you meant, you know, we are not competing with Oregon and Washington State and Nevada for these things. We're no. com- you know, as you mentioned, we're competing with Virginia, South Carolina. So, you know, even if we did a regional compact, you know it wouldn't have no. to be the whole country but no. even those of us in the southeast went together and said you know what we're going to sell our region as the best place in the state to come and do business and then compete among ourselves with lower tax rates, with fewer regulation, with just the natural resources that we have. Those kind of things would certainly be a better way to do it than when government is really taking a risk with taxpayer money by betting on a particular industry or in many cases a particular company. Uh, But this does seem to go on. But Don, one thing that we've seen, some improvements over the years, if you're going to do this, and again, I don't think it's a good idea to do it at all, but if you're going to do it to put more accountability into place and do things like perhaps instead of, for example, instead of just handing taxpayer cash over to a company to come, what if you did an exit um, off of the highway? or put some infrastructure in place that would benefit that company, then if something happens, the company picks up and leaves, you still have an asset, you being the, ta- yes, the taxpayers, yeah. you have an asset that would have value to someone else that perhaps would draw them to take up that particular piece of property. So there's, you know, there's ways to do it. Doing some of these as grants rather than just giveaway projects so that in the budget process it is determined by our elected officials Okay, this is how much money we're going to give for this particular industry. They did this with the film incentives a couple years ago, where rather than just having it embedded in the tax code, they put it in a grant program. I think it was $15 million the first year so that we as taxpayers and people that are trying to keep up with the budget know this is how much money we have. There's a competitive grant process that goes into place so that we have some oversight as to who's getting that money. Still, I'd rather see none of that going on and just take all of that money, put it into community colleges for workforce training, um, offer a lower tax rate, roll regulations back, and then open the doors to North Carolina and say, come and compete for the, the best business environment that we can possibly provide.
0: Becky, you uh, have answered that question extraordinarily well, and we appreciate you taking time to be with us on Carolina Newsmakers. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. We look forward to having you back uh, perhaps in a couple of weeks and tell us what's going on at the General Assembly. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another guest for us next week. Till next week, have a nice week.